Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me open my Bible and invite you to open yours. John 13. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. So John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in Chapter 13, verse 21, that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel... He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Go and buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and John adds, it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this is your word. And we pray now that you would give your spirit and that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear the truth and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make of us a people that the whole world can look at and say, that's the real deal. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So authenticity in a world that is full of a lot of fake is a big deal. If you don't think so, just go spend some counterfeit money, some Monopoly money. Try to pass off a copy of a Van Gogh at a museum or a zirconium to one who might be expecting something a little more real, right? a real diamond. A fake may work for a while, but once experts in authenticity get involved and the truth is known, you're likely to face a hefty penalty for your deception. This also applies in the spiritual realm. Only being authentically Christian is more than a big deal. It's actually an eternally significant deal. You might say it carries the weight of glory with it. And yet, it also holds a mission-critical utility here and now. Here and now. As it calms our spiritual anxieties, it facilitates, as we see in our text this morning, a culture of love in the church. And in doing that, it validates the truth of the gospel of Jesus for the world. Authenticity. You see, among the prevailing counter-narratives, not only in the world, but also at times I think probably within our own souls, is that all this gospel stuff is really just smoke and mirrors. It's a hypocrite's scandal. It's fool's gold. I think we can be honest there and admit a lot about us, a lot in us, under the expert scrutiny of Christ and the Bible falls short of Christ's intention. In their scales of authenticity, we're like to find far too much insincerity. And as we must then, we need to own that insincerity and we need to begin to remember that we need to be looking to Jesus day after day after day for change. Please authenticate us. Right? We and the church and this world are in dire need of a Christianity that takes his kind of authenticity seriously. Which is the theme of our text this morning. It's about belonging truly and enduringly to Jesus Christ. Truly and enduringly, authentically, to Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, let's come to our text and to the discovery first of an inauthentic, an inauthentic disciple. As we come to verse 21, we again find our Lord troubled in spirit, and we at least know why He's troubled in spirit. You may remember back in chapter 12, verse 27, that his great soul was greatly troubled by the thought of the dying task that was just in front of him. And here, more directly, his soul is troubled again because, as he knows, it's time for that ball now to drop and then to roll and to do its worst. He's troubled again because in the middle of exemplifying and expositing and then in our text exhorting us to a servant-hearted love, indivisible from Christ and Him crucified, one of His very best friends, and compatriots in ministry will negotiate and then initiate his death, his going to the cross. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know this tale, uh, but little, little can we really know what it was to have, as the Bible calls him, a friend who, no matter his experience of the perfect man's infinite love would still side against him, walk out on him, lead the cross brigade to him, seek to cover it all up with a kiss, and in a word betray him to the most hideous, God-awful death anyone ever experienced, and to do it all for 30 pieces of silver. Man, what we will do with God, if only to satisfy our gods, our ideals, ourselves, and the sting of truth and grace upon our sin-calloused consciences. Uh, George Herbert is a great old Christian poet. 
He has to get close to Jesus' grief when he writes these lines. He says, Mine own apostle, who the bag did bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also, and to put me there was ever grief like mine. For thirty pence he did my death devise, who at three hundred did the ointment prize, not half so sweet as my sweet sacrifice was ever grief like mine. We've all known grief and even tremendous grief, but I think we can all agree the answer to Jesus' question by the poet's pen is no, there's never been a grief like the one in Jesus' testimony here in our text. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And again, we know the story. We know the story, we know who the one is, and because of that, we may actually miss one of John's main points the one to the many could have been any one of them. Could have been any one of them. Uh, the other disciples had no clue who the one was. You see that? They had no clue who the one was. It wasn't like soon as these words left Jesus' mouth, they were all like, say no more, Jesus. At last. It's been obvious really the whole time. I don't know how you've missed it. We've just been waiting for you to see it and then call a spade a spade. It's clearly Judas. Come on. No. When Jesus said this, you see in verses 22 and 23, they all got nervous. <laughs> okay? They all got at least curious. But none of them were Columbo. Does anybody know Columbo? Perry Mason. Matlock. Who's the great detective today? We're all good with Matlock? Okay. Okay. None of them were Columbo, Matlock, these guys. None of them pegged Judas as the turncoat. They were all uncertain, it says, of whom Jesus spoke. Why is that? Because perhaps, even for quite a while, inauthentic disciples can look and sound like authentic ones. Though generally ignorant of what's going on in their souls, their saturation in Christian culture, especially it's been for a really long time, can provide them a kind of camouflage. Right? Uh, they pick up the, the language of Christians, and they pick up the habits of Christians, and they pick up the deeds of Christians, and they, they, uh, they, they pick up the views even of true disciples to the degree that they appear even to true disciples to be true disciples themselves. And that's why we cannot settle as a church of Christians zealous for the glory of Jesus on a brand of Christianity that carelessly facilitates that camouflage, that makes it easy for inauthentic disciples to feel right at home with Christ amongst the truly redeemed, that to appease Western individualism, subjectivity, tolerance, and pragmatism cancels all the structures of discernment, authority, order, discipline, doctrine, and soul care that Christ has given in the Bible as a grace and a guard and a guide, not just for His people, but for His people to exercise in the cultivation of a believer's church, which is mission critical for being the witness Jesus wants us to be in this world. Simply put, easy believism is not the Bible's way with souls. It cares about cultivating a culture of the cross that more readily lends itself to true conversion 
and thus to souls that grow to value Jesus and the things that Jesus values more than anything else in the world. And certainly more than 30 pieces of silver. Or 30 billion pieces of silver. And while clearly we won't always get it right, which the fact of something like church discipline verifies, we can be sure, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.19, that the Lord knows His own. And that 2 Peter 1.10, the Lord wants us to have His certainty for ourselves. He really wants us to know that we are His. So, you see how Peter there can't let it alone? You can't just leave that hanging. One of you is going to betray me, uh, not Peter, right? How, verse 24, he leans on John to lean on Jesus to get the man's name. Some, no doubt, chalk that up to Peter being his typically forward self, but some part of me wonders whether it's Peter displaying his own self-curiosity, his own lack of confidence, okay? Perhaps in asking, Lord, who is it? There's a bit also of, Lord, is it me? Peter would not be the first great leader to cover great insecurities with false bravado. I will go to jail, even die for you. But at any rate, we should go to Jesus. We should go to Jesus for personal clarity and peace about our souls. Why else do we go to a doctor but to be examined under the premise, under the hope of peace? Right? And just so, it's good for us to go to the doctor of our souls, the physician of our souls, with an open heart and an open Bible, and tell him, here are the things I see causing distance between you and me, and if I've missed anything, Lord, please come and show me what it is. I desperately want to be close to you, so please come and do your work in me. Help me to glorify you, to endure with you, to expand even under the shadow of the cross with who you've revealed yourself to be. Prove me to be really yours. Give me peace about it. Dear ones, Jesus died to make good on that kind of praying. But to the inquiry then, you see, he doesn't give a name. He gives a sign that had been nestled in Scripture for like a thousand years. <laughs> it comes from Psalm 41.9, which Julianne read for us a moment ago. Our verse 26, Jesus says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Do you think they all were a little nervous as he took that bread and began to sop it? Right? Jesus was never one to lack for suspense, was he? <laughs> well, he takes the sop, and as we know, he gives it not to John, doesn't give it to Peter, he gives it to insert the name. He gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And what happens at that point is truly pivotal. Okay? Friends, what would come to signify the dying love of Christ for His people and our participation in His dying love is given to Judas by Jesus in the real hope, I think, that it would break his heart, that it would alight his soul, that it would bring about a change of course for him. And yet, what does this gesture of Christ's dying love do for him? What does it do? It only serves to draw out the night that had always ruled and dominated his soul. 
He's been known. He's been warned. He's been loved. He's been waved in by Christ. And none of it stirs his conscience. None of it convicts him of his sin. None of it quickens him to mercy. It only hardens him. It is a scary thing, a frightening thing, how resistant our hearts can be to the overtures of redemption. Nothing seems likely to touch such people, one said, but the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. This symbol of Jesus' death for sinners like Judas only worked, only worked to manifest the death, the spiritual death that was in Judas. Indeed, this final expression of his love for Judas becomes what? It becomes Satan's point of visible intrigue. Into Judas and into the passion narrative. So this is a a stunning pivot. Just rest assured, Satan hates the love of Christ. Hates it. He hates the love of Christ and does all he can to harden us to it. To make us accustomed to it. Listen now. To make us accustomed to it. Then apathetic about it. Then neglectful of it. Then offended by it, and finally, if he may, even sick of it, opposed to it. Satan does not mind you participating in the events of Christ's love so long as you have no active working receptors for Christ's love. As one put put it profoundly, Judas received the sop, but he did not receive the love. He took that bread that had been dipped. He received the sop, but not the love behind it. And so he was judged for it, rather than secured and saved. Beloved, listen. As under-shepherds of Christ, just so you know, it is our aim, and we're not always going to get it right, We don't. But it is our aim in everything we do concerning you to love you. We have that charge from 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. It's to saturate you from Genesis to Revelation, from polity to pulpit, whether more public or private, it's to saturate you in the love of Christ. For you. That's the charge that we've received from him to have dying love behind every dripping sop. But it's still incumbent upon us all to trust that and receive every sop as intended, as full of love for you. Judas did not receive the ministry of the chief. Shepherd that way. Instead of melting him, the love of Christ hardened him. The night, into verse 30, eventually came out of him, which is the way of inauthentic disciples. And discerning it plainly, you see Jesus then hurries him to it. Verse 27, what are you going to do or what you are going to do? Do quickly. He actually urges Judas to leave the company of true disciples and to get on about Satan's business. And so against believing, that's what Judas does. And apparently, it's not to escape us that no one knows what's going on still except Jesus and us as we read the story. 
We're to be aware, church, even in the best of ministries. Was there ever a better ministry than that of Jesus? Even in the best of ministries, there are Judases. They serve Jesus. They steward Jesus' resources. He holds the money bag. They preach His name. They commune with His people. His people don't even know that they're any different than themselves. But inevitably, they do not, and here's the key, inevitably they do not endure with Jesus. They don't abide in His love. They go out. Night becomes them. And so the inauthentic disciple is discovered. And it paves the way for the discovery of authenticating Christian community. Really, it's a resumption of the main teaching in the chapter on imitating, in some sense, the love of Christ, particularly toward the people of Christ. It's a notable thing that Jesus continues the lesson once the betrayer has gone out of their company. You see that? Verse 31. He's gone out from the still imperfect but true company of disciples. So no doubt about it, beloved, Jesus cares about the purity of His assembly. He waits for Judas to leave, for that little band to consist solely of new and true hearts before addressing the missional imperative that He wants to be at the center of their post-ascension community, that is, what we're supposed to be. They're supposed to be in this world by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. These are preparatory words, and they are the first of those preparatory words, and so they are vital, however repetitive they might be. There's something that Jesus wants to brand into our beings, forgetful as we tend to be. And so he returns instantly to heaven's perspective on the cross. He wants us to be clear. He wants us to nail this down. That the cross, again, is the glory of God in Christ. That's remarkable. The cross is the glory of God in Christ. The betrayer has gone out, the ball has started rolling, the night is darkening yet, and yet, when it is pitch dark at the cross... God in Christ as judge and savior of the world will shine most brightly, brilliantly and beautifully. Now verse 31, is the Son of Man, what? Glorified. And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Christ, God will also glorify Christ in Himself and glorify Him at once. So there's no delay. The cross of Christ. Far from proving Jesus to be an imposter, imposter, far from revealing God's disavowal of Him, far from a divine loss, a defeat. The cross is the display of God's character, of God's purpose, and God's pleasure in Jesus Christ. It shows just how far God was willing to go to reveal Himself for our salvation. God is glorified in this. It's the revelation of the heart of God for sinners in Jesus. And it's the revelation of Jesus as Himself, God. The cross. Is this how we view the cross? Has this made it into our daily meditations about the cross of Christ? That again, as our Lord's cross was His triumph and His purchase and His magnet and His throne and His apologetic, which we saw a couple weeks ago, it was also chiefly the great portrait of His deity. (laughs) The very heart of God. People want to see God. Where is God, they say. Show me God. Fine, I will. Behold, the cross of Jesus of Nazareth, who in the pitch of Satan's night died to save us from our sins against 
Him. That is glory divine. It's no wonder that the early church was hotly criticized for worshiping a man the whole world, as it were, had crucified. Think about that. Real believers see nothing less on the cross of Jesus than God in the most splendid love, willingly hated, rejected, despised, mistreated, betrayed, beaten, murdered, and saving us thereby. The cross is the heart of God opened up to us. And it's having established that theology of the cross that Jesus now discloses two things. Verse 33. Oh, I love that. I say verse 33 and everybody looks down at their Bible. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's good. Verse 33. The cross is very near so that his time with them is short. There will soon be a separation of Jesus from his disciples. He is going to die, then rise, then go before them to glory. But then they will not instantly follow him. Right? He will depart, but they will remain. And they will do so, is what I want us to see, they're going to remain on purpose, which is what verses 34 and 35 intend to explore. Right? These are some of the most famous verses probably in the Bible that we need to hear in their context. Right? These are the concluding words, the grand exhortation of Christ's first preparatory lesson for His soon-to-be apostles, who are going to be the ones who lay the foundation for what we are and what we are to be, namely, Christ's true church in this fallen world. And so, first of all, you ready? We are to be a community, a counterculture, of cross-saturated, glory-bound love. A new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you what? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Pay attention now. By this, all people will know you're mine. You are my disciples. There was something really, really distinctive about Jesus that he wants to be distinctive about us. And people see that in us and they go, they belong to him. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, conditional if you have love for one another. So, from the beginning, at the heart of authentic and authenticating Christian community is Christ-like love, and we do need to be precise about it. This is a command of Jesus to His people. It's a command, a new commandment I give to you. It's a command to his people, ergo, to forego this love is a sin. Right? To live it out, on the contrary, is obedience, righteousness. So this is not a trifling, unserious suggestion of Christ. We need to hear this as a command of our King. This love is to be the in-season, out-of-season hallmark of His people. And we need to see that it is particularly for His people. Though it's often misused this way. Maybe you've seen it misused this way. Jesus is not commanding us in these verses to love everybody in the world. That's not what He's commanding here. No. Here, he's commanding his disciples, right, 
He's commanding His disciples to especially love who? One another, each other. Now, that is not to say that we're to love the peoples of the world any less. It's just to say that we're to love the world, as we're going to see, by loving the people in your church more and better. And so, we're not to love each other with any old love. There's something new about this love, which I take by our context, to be that Christ is our model. Think about it. Christ is our model. The cross is our extent. How, how far should my love for this brother or sister go? To the cross. All the way. Right? Christ is our model. The cross is our extent. Glory is our time stamp. And the members of this church sitting all around you this morning are the special emphasis. You remember Galatians 6.10, I believe it is? That's all this is. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone and especially the household of faith is what it says. That's this. Beloved, do you love this church? Do you love this church? And do you love each of its members as a faithful Christian at the foot of the cross in the sure hope of seeing Jesus face to face? If so, that will be felt. It will make an impact. It will be palpable. It will not only authenticate you as a follower of Christ, it will authenticate, even in a sense, incarnate the risen Jesus for a watching world. When we love one another as Christ loved us, Caring for one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, edifying one another, praying for one another, enjoying one another, weeping and rejoicing together and doing it sincerely and gratefully and enduringly. Over time, a church awakens as the living body of Christ. It becomes, as one said, an alternative plausibility structure for faith in Jesus to the unbelieving world. It becomes, as a good book is titled, a compelling community. I've seen this kind of community cause the lost to stop and think. I've never known a community like that. I haven't found that in this world. I haven't even found that in my own family. Indeed. And that's because a community that lives off the cross and loves the church as if glory lies in wait is the community not of this world, but of another one. It's supernatural. It's the true family of God. Do we know what our love, or lack thereof, can do? Do we know the harm we can do to one another, to the world, to Christ's glory, if ever this assembly is marked by anger, uh, bitterness, suspicion, gossip, rudeness, self-preference, backbiting, things that Jesus died to crucify amongst us? And do we know the good we can do to each of those things, to one another, to the world, to the glory of Christ, if, on the contrary, we're marked by what's called cruciform, cross-shaped, cross-shaping love? Beloved, we're to exist fundamentally, Jesus is saying, as a living exposition 
of the heart of Jesus, and again, particularly for his people. It's mission critical, he says. If and only if we have love for one another, will all people be forced to seriously reckon with us as disciples of Jesus. Think about that. The churches, listen now, this is so critical for our missiology, our understanding of missions. The church's internal love is the first, the first major component, the launching point not to be minimized for our external testimony to the world. Wow! We are Christ's witness. Somewhere along the way, we've come to maybe equate things like personal evangelism with missions. That is part of missions. But dear ones, Christ came first, apparently, to create a people whose cross-saturated, glory-bound love for one another authenticates them and the gospel we also then go out to preach. Earnest preaching, where there is no evident peopling, is biblically problematic. Christ's intent was always to create a people by the gospel whose lives together preach and support the preaching of the gospel. And so as one said, Jesus has made our love for one another, listen to this, the test of Christianity before the world, our love for one another. The test of Christianity before the world. Is our church passing that test? Do people find in us authenticating Christian community? I think so. I think so. But still, my prayer for us is that we'd be as the churches in Tertullian's days, as an old church father way back when. He reports the testimony, listen to this, the testimony of unbelievers in his day. This is what unbelievers were saying around him. See, they say, how they, the believers, the Christians, see how, how they love one another <laughs> and how ready they are even to die for one another. <laughs> Gosh, I wonder where they got that. Love one another just as I have loved you. So we've discovered an inauthentic disciple and the mark authenticating Christian community. And both of those discoveries prompt a quick and essential third, the discovery of Christ himself for authenticity's endurance. Uh, for Peter, the charge to love here, right, is totally muted. He doesn't hear that at all. <laughs> God help it not to be us. All he hears is Jesus is about to be separated from him. He was never, you know, kin to that ideal. He understands that that separation is going to include some force. And so because Peter is a true disciple of Jesus, he steps forward to stand with Jesus. Lord, where, verse 36, are you going? And Jesus answers, somewhere you can't. <laughs> I'm going somewhere you can't follow now but will follow afterwards. By which he means both, I think, the cross and glory. And so Peter, all riled up, comes at him again, but Lord, why can't I follow you now? And then, <laughs> I, I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> Peter. So strong and brave, except not at all. You see how Jesus responds in verse 38? Oh, Peter, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, as God the witness, the rooster will not crow 
till you have denied me three times. Beloved, as we'll see later with Peter, our devotion to Christ, however grandly stated, is as enduring as a servant girl's inquisition. It may be mighty around a table of good food with good friends. Oh, I love Jesus. I'm devoted to Jesus. I'll do anything for Jesus because I'm sitting with (laughs) y'all. But let even the weakest member of unbelieving society threaten to call us out on it. And there is like to be no strength left in us for standing true to Jesus. What grounds do we have then for believing we won't turn out for Judas? But you see something at the end of verse 36. Granted, Jesus tells Peter he cannot follow Jesus now. But now watch this. He goes on. How does he finish that sentence? You will follow afterward. (laughs) Okay? He says that basically in the same breath that he's about to prophesy Peter's impending failure. What's going on there? What's going on is this. Jesus has no grand assumptions of our perfection. He came into the world to save sinners. He has no grand assumptions of our perfection. And yet, he does have grand assumptions about our endurance. Of our failing, but then also of our continuing. Of our falling flat on our face, but then also of our rising again. Which is really all to say that Jesus is perfectly confident in the strength of his devotion. holding us fast to our perseverance. Peter will follow Jesus afterward. And guess what? Peter will even lose his life for Jesus afterward. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for Peter. Because Jesus bought with his own blood Peter's perseverance. Because Jesus, as we read earlier in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, because Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not finally fail. Do you remember that? And just so, Jesus lives today to hold you and me fast. Peter does not become Peter. Acts chapter 2. <laughs> Great sermon. 3,000 souls converted. Peter doesn't become that because of Peter. This is Peter in our text. And you know what else? This is you and me. The only thing distinguishing us from Judas, in fact, is Christ in us. And Christ's devotion to us. Depicted for us where? Supremely at the cross. The only hope we have of faithfully following the crucified one, of proving true to the end, is the almighty resolve of Jesus to love us to the end. Do you recall it? Do you recall this great promise? John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will be able ever to snatch them out of my hand. That's where you are, Christian. Oh, beloved, I don't want to put it on you, but I imagine you will stumble. I imagine that your devotion will go dry from time to time. I imagine that you will have relapses into sin. I imagine that you will deny Christ one way or another. I imagine that at times your life 
as a Christian is going to be excruciating. And in those moments, like this moment here, it will come clear that the only reason we get back up, the only reason we survive the desert, the only reason we would ever weep for repentance, the only reason we would abide in His love, the only reason we continue to trust Him, the only reason we would become, even at the cost of our lives, faithful to Him, the only reason that we will finish the race for Jesus is because Jesus held us the entire time. That's it. It will serve us well to discover as Peter did and Paul said, Christ, His grace alone is sufficient for me. That's it. Oh, friend, I just returned from Mexico. I got in and out because my passport was real. If it were fake, I'm pretty sure they would not have let me into the country or back into this one. And just so, getting into glory will require an authentic passport of sorts. It will require repentance and faith in Jesus. It will require the stamp of His justifying grace applied to your life. It's available to you right now. Don't walk out back out into the night again. Receive Jesus and be saved right now. Oh, dear ones, let you and I be quickened by Judas. Let's be rooted in the church. Let's love her. And let's be situated in the hand of Christ. Our authenticity, proving true to Jesus to the end, is a really big deal. And regarding it, may the Lord Himself give us a great deal of faith and hope. And what else? Love. Yeah, let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its instruction. We pray to know its power. We pray to know your love that keeps us. We praise you for the great promises that you've made to us. We do trust you to hold us fast. Thank you for blessed assurance. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. May you have all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.